0: It's April 26th, 1865. The country is still reeling from a long civil war that has only just come to an end. And to add salt to the wound, just 12 days earlier, on April 14th, the 16th president of the United States of America, Abraham Lincoln, was assassinated. Lincoln's funeral train slowly travels through the night from Albany to Buffalo, New York. Fastened to the engine is a portrait of the president, and around 300 people accompany his body as it makes its 1,654-mile voyage. Another coffin is also on the train, that of his 11-year-old son, Willie, who died of typhoid fever in 1862. Willie has been disinterred so that he can be laid to rest next to his father at the family plot in Springfield, Illinois. Thousands of Americans gather in silence along the railway tracks to watch it pass, grief-stricken and frightened of what will become of their struggling new nation. South of Buffalo in eastern Virginia, dawn breaks over the Rappahannock River. Bald eagles rustle in their nests high in the canopies of the loblolly pines. Overlooking the surrounding wetlands, forests, and grasslands, Black ducks slowly make their way along the riverbank in search of pondweed, insects, and worms to feast on. The calm of early dawn is ruffled by the occasional death rattle, coming from a man lying on a blood-soaked mattress on the porch of Richard H. Garrett's farmhouse. The farmhouse is just outside Port Royal on the south bank of Rappahannock. Garrett and his family have had a long and testing night, How could they have ever predicted that the final throes of a national crisis would play out on the steps of their humble home? Mrs. Garrett and her daughter take turns mopping the brow of the man dying in front of them. Boston Corbett, a Sergeant of the Federal Army, also there with other soldiers, listens intently for fear he might miss any final words the man might utter. Moments earlier, Corbett defied a direct order and shot John Wilkes Booth through the back of the neck. John Wilkes Booth, the renowned Shakespearean actor and President Abraham Lincoln's assassin, is paralyzed instantly. As part of a team of federal soldiers, Corbett has spent 12 days hunting Booth. The hunt starts on the night of the assassination. The 72 forts surrounding Washington, D.C. are put on high alert and given instructions to close off the city. The 26,000 soldiers stationed in and around the Capitol are placed on duty. They surround the city, and telegrams are sent out at the speed of light instructing that Booth and anyone with him is arrested on sight. Yet, he somehow evades capture along with his co-conspirator, David Harold. They follow a pre-planned escape route into Southern Maryland. The area is sparsely populated and has very few telegraphs or railroads, making it difficult for the authorities to track them. But in the coming days, the detachment of soldiers pick up their trail Secretary of State Edwin M. Stanton issues a $100,000 reward, and tips start coming in. They search woods and swamps, but Booth and Harold are hiding at properties owned by sympathizers and co-conspirators. They are heading to Richmond, Virginia, the headquarters of the Confederate resistance. Booth believes on arrival into Richmond, he will receive a hero's welcome. For a time, Booth and Harold waited out in Maryland's woods, ready to cross the Potomac River into Virginia at the first opportunity. As they wait to cross, Booth writes in his journal, For six months we had work to capture, but our cause being almost lost, something decisive and great must be done. I struck boldly, and not as the papers say. I can never repent it, though we hated to kill. When they cross the Potomac and reach Virginia's shores, other sympathizers are there to help on the next leg of the journey— but Union soldiers are in hot pursuit and board a boat that steams down the river. Interrogating known Confederates along the way, the detachment learns of Booth's whereabouts. They follow the lead and cross the Rappahannock River, finally cornering him and Harold and Garrett's tobacco barn. Everyone is exhausted from the turmoil of the last 12 days and the grueling chase. The soldiers surround the barn and the order is given for the fugitives to come out. Harold surrenders immediately, but Booth has one last fight left in him. I prefer to come out and fight, Booth barks back. The soldiers set the barn on fire. Through a crack, Corbett spies Booth stumbling around in the smoke-filled barn, fire blazing around him. The instruction was clear from the onset. Booth is to be captured alive so he can stand trial. For reasons unknown, Corbett raises his pistol and takes aim. He pulls the trigger. Booth collapses and is dragged out of the barn. A mattress is brought onto the porch of the Garrett home and the President's assassin is placed on it. Unable to move and slowly asphyxiating from the wound to his neck, he asks that his hands be raised to his face so that he can see them. Useless, Booth utters. Useless. The soldiers move in closer and the Garrett family watches on in silence. There isn't anything anyone can do for him. The sky shifts in color as the death watch begins. As the sun finally crests over the Garrett home, Booth chokes and whispers his final words. Tell mother i die for my country. You would think that this is the end of the matter the man who assassinated Lincoln is dead, and the country can move on and begin to rebuild from a civil war that has torn it apart. For a while, that is exactly what happens. Lincoln is laid to rest alongside his son on May 4th, 1865, at the Oak Ridge Cemetery in Springfield. Time passes, the grief subsides, and reconstruction efforts become the order of the day. But in 1907, 42 years after the assassination of Lincoln, a lawyer from Texas comes forward and makes shocking claims that will leave many wondering what really happened on April 26, 1865. Finis L. Bates publishes a book containing an explosive deathbed confession from a man claiming to be John Wilkes Booth. There is no doubt it was Booth who killed Lincoln at Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. on April 14, 1865, but The book tells a different story of what happened next. It asserts Booth was never at the Garrett farm on that fateful morning. He escaped, fleeing into anonymity. 42 years later, he is ready to confess. According to Bates, Corbett shot one of Booth's co-conspirators. The claims send shockwaves through America and plunge it back into one of its darkest moments. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secrets off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of John Wilkes Booth, of the words he allegedly spoke as he lay dying. It's about the assassination of one of the most prominent presidents of the United States of America, and the turmoil and uncertainty that followed. It tells the story of a nation divided and fearful of more war, and of one man's obsession with redirecting the course of American history. It's about the hunt to find him, the discovery of his co-conspirators, and the doubts that continue to plague the last moments of the assassin and one man's need to confess all before it's too late. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions.
1: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness.
0: New season out on Spotify soon. In 1872, Finnis L. Bates was a young man on the threshold of adulthood. He studied law and settled in the remote town of Granbury, out on the frontier of Texas. It sits under the Bosque Mountains, a wilderness of 38 summits with the Bosque River lazily winding through valleys and homesteads. Raids from the Comanche nation occasionally interrupt the quiet surrounding the Concord area, but mostly it is a place where not much happens. Bates is here cutting his teeth as a young lawyer. He mostly handles land disputes, licensing, and trade agreements for clients. Nothing too exciting. A client of his is being indicted for selling tobacco and whiskey out of Glenrose Mills, a small holding with log houses, living quarters, and a store on the shore of the Bosque River. Only, his client doesn't own the holding. John St. Helen does. Bates hunts St. Helen down and asks him to appear as a witness in federal court on behalf of his client. If he can prove St. Helen owns the property and not his client, the case will be dismissed. In an unexpected move, St. Helen employs Bates as his lawyer. Now, Bates cannot incriminate his new client or insist he appear. And St. Helen's clever move to avoid court has made Bates curious about the man. St. Helen is quiet and soft-mannered. He is eloquent and, to Bates, seems too refined for frontier living. St. Helen explains that he cannot appear in federal court. This only heightens Bates's curiosity, and along with being his lawyer, they strike up a friendship of sorts. He visits St. Helen at Glenrose from time to time, and St. Helen drops into Bates's office in town. They talk about this and that, and St. Helen often reads Shakespeare out loud. It is one of his favorite pastimes. Bates never asks him about his true identity, and St. Helen never offers an explanation. Five years pass and St. Helen is struck down with a terrible disease. He takes to his sickbed, weak, emaciated, and delirious. Bates is woken one night and told he must rush to Glenrose. St. Helen is in the last throes of death. Bates dresses in a hurry and when he arrives, he finds the doctor holding St. Helen's wrist and counting his irregular pulse. St. Helen is dying, the doctor says, He wishes to speak to you. Bates approaches the bed and gently asks what he can do for him. His eyes gently flickering, St. Helen whispers, I am dying. My name is John Wilkes Booth. And I am the assassin of President Lincoln. Get the picture of myself from under the pillow. I leave it with you for my future identification." Notify my brother, Edwin Booth, of New York City. Bates removes the picture from under the pillow and waits. He knows very little about John Wilkes Booth, the actor and assassin of Lincoln. Bates grew up on a quiet plantation in Mississippi and was 17 when the president was killed. He never really gave the episode much thought over the course of his young life. Now, he has questions. Questions that only his friend can answer. He looks at St. Helen, or John Wilkes Booth, and waits for more. St. Helen closes his eyes. Bates cannot tell if his friend is in the final sleep of death or a restful one promising future recovery. He hopes it's the latter. How did Booth, a young man celebrated across America as one of the most gifted actors of his time, become capable of such a bold act of violence? Journalists and people who knew him would seek to answer that question in the days after Lincoln's assassination. Many still ask that same question today, with every explanation offered seeming to fall short. It is inexplicable to most people, but when you look closely at the trajectory of Booth's life, it is possible to see the traces of events, relationships, and circumstances that together rouse a desire in Booth to stand at the crossroads of American history and direct its course. Booth is born on May 10, 1838, to Mary Ann and Junius Booth in Maryland. He's raised under the rolling hills of Hartford County in 15 acres of wilderness, just outside the village of Bel Air. Marianne, having lost a number of her children in the 1833 cholera outbreak, smothers Booth with love and affection. His father Junius, an immigrant from England, is a well-regarded stage actor. In America, Junius is considered one of the best actors of his era. At home, he counsels his children to never resort to violence, admonishing them for even killing a fly, and makes a personal choice to abstain from eating meat because of the cruelty inflicted on animals. He also refuses to own enslaved people, and welcomes anyone who crosses his threshold with warmth and hospitality. Raised with love and strong moral guidance, It is difficult to fathom how Booth would one day, so violently and publicly, take the life of one of the most influential presidents in the history of the United States. But Booth's descent into violence started when he was a young boy. Unbeknown to others, his parents are harboring a secret. He and Mary are not legally married. They elope to America with Junius leaving a wife and children behind in England. When his legal wife hears of Junius's success and wealth as a stage actor in America, she tracks him down in Maryland and petitions the court for a divorce. The scandal brings shame and stigma to a widely respected man and family name. Importantly, it challenges Booth's legitimacy as a descendant of that family. Booth carries the stigma on his shoulders. He pledges to restore his family's honor and takes up a career in stage acting. The young Booth has something to prove. When his father suddenly dies in 1852, Booth, at the tender age of 14, leaves the strict military boarding school he has been attending and returns home to his mother. He steps into his father's shoes, intending to become the man of the household. Around him, the world is slowly falling apart. Slavery is polarizing the country, dividing it between North, pro-abolitionist states, and South, pro-slavery states. Wedged between the North and South, Maryland is the old-line state where those two opposing sides collide. In Maryland, both the abolitionists and supporters of slavery are treated with suspicion and mistrust. A new political view comes to prevail over the state. Know-nothings, a nativist movement that rejects immigration and peddles a fear of outsiders and foreign influence. Despite being a child of immigrants, Booth is swept up in the social tensions of the time he attends know-nothing rallies with his sister. Those early forays into political activism would become more and more extreme so that eventually, violence and even murder are justified. For a long while, Booth keeps any political opinions he has to himself, and concentrates on establishing his stage career. He works as a stock actor for many years, a brutal craft that requires mastering a specific character archetype, a villain, gentleman, or hero. It involves memorizing the lines of that archetype character across a huge number of plays so that he can perform in a play at short notice, anywhere and anytime. It is how actors cut their teeth in the world of 19th century entertainment. In 1855, he catches a break and is cast as Richmond and Richard III. His star begins to rise. Audiences love him, theater companies find him easy to work with, and his peers and critics believe him to be a gifted actor. Women flock to his dressing room, keen to have a moment with the handsome athletic actor with wavy hair and dark broody eyes that is taking the country by storm. But in 1859, Booth once again becomes involved in the political struggle of his time. John Brown, a leader of a group of abolitionists, is captured in Virginia and found guilty of murder, inciting slaves to insurrection and treason. His punishment is death by hanging. Two weeks before his scheduled hanging, the governor of Virginia sounds the warning that abolitionists are heading for Charleston, where Brown is being held, to break him out of jail. He calls for militia groups to gather and prevent Brown's rescue. Outraged, Booth decides it is high time to get involved. Though not a member of any militia group, he takes the train to Charlestown, ready to participate in ensuring justice is done. And Brown hangs, but the rescue attempt never materializes. Booth stays on in Charlestown to watch Brown's execution. As he watches the man hang, Booth surprisingly develops respect for him. His bravery in the final moments of life leave a strong impression. Later, he describes Brown as a man-inspired and the grandest character of the century. Perhaps a character Booth starts to imagine himself to be. When Abraham Lincoln is elected president in November 1860, it further polarizes a country already divided. A staunch abolitionist, Lincoln is loved by some and hated by others, and is seen as both tyrant and father figure. Slavery is the consuming topic of the day. Talk of secession and civil war is on everyone's lips. For Booth, keeping the union together is what matters. He blames the abolitionists for tearing the nation apart their obsession with slavery and relentless efforts to bring it to an end, has caused the crisis the country finds itself in. And if the South chooses to now split, it is because the North, with Lincoln at the helm, leaves it no other option. Booth takes a paternalistic view of slavery, believing both master and slave are happy with the arrangement. He argues Africans live better in America as slaves than they do as free people anywhere else in the world. And in his travels South, they appear happy Much like the country, his family is divided along the same lines. Those who support Lincoln and abolition, and those who support the South. Booth showing open support of the South would break up the Booth family and destroy the legacy he committed to protect when a young boy. Booth hesitates and does not throw himself into the fight. But matters are about to get worse.
2: Pinocchio, Sleeping Beauty, The Little Mermaid. They're all iconic Disney movies. But did you know the original versions of these stories did not end with a happily ever after? Hi, I'm Alastair from Parcast, and I'm hosting a new Spotify original called Once Upon a Time. For nine weeks, we're commemorating the 120th anniversary of original Imagineer Walt Disney's birth by lifting the curtain and comparing some of your favorite Disney stories with their earliest tellings. Once Upon a Time will chart Disney's career triumphs, as well as the crushing defeats that almost ruined it all. We'll also look at what it took to bring these stories to life and why Disney's adapted versions became so memorable across generations. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast once upon a time. Listen free and exclusively on Spotify. This episode
1: is brought to you by Anytime Fitness.
0: 1861. On April 12th, Confederate units fire on Union soldiers at Fort Sumter in South Carolina, ending a standoff instigated by the state's vote to secede. This act takes the country to war. Booth keeps his head down. But by 1864, the Union is crumbling around him. Booth watches as the South is beaten in battle after battle. He is demoralized by Confederate losses and outraged by Lincoln's hardline approach. The grueling work of acting, endless performances, thousands of miles of travel under harsh conditions, and injuries due to his risky stage performances also begin to take its toll. The women have moved on and the wealth he accumulated is starting to dry up. He is tired and the critics are not as kind as they once were. Booth's star is waning. He reaches a crossroads. Does he continue a stage career that is waning? Or reinvent himself as a fighting man? The choice he makes will change the course of American history. To reverse the fortunes of the South, a man of honor is needed to step bravely forward and take bold action, the archetypal hero. Such a man will snatch victory from the enemy at the final hour and win the day. In his own imagination, Booth is such a man. He has dedicated his entire life to protecting the legacy of his family name. He is bold, much like John Brown, who years earlier he came to admire for his bravely facing the noose. The South has one final fight left in it, and so does Booth. There is no better man for the role. In 1864, Booth steps off stage and enters the theater of war. He is about to play the ultimate lead role in a production of his own making. As the war progresses, Lincoln takes a harder approach. The food supplies of the Confederate army are intercepted, houses of suspected rebels are burned to the ground, and the president refuses to exchange prisoners of war. For Booth, this is one barbaric act too many. Southern newspapers report on the inhumane treatment of their prisoners in the North, including abuse, starvation, and Confederate soldiers used as human shields. It puts a strain on the Confederate army. Booth is seething. He hatches a plan. He intends to abduct President Lincoln and smuggle him across the Potomac River into Richmond in Virginia, the capital of the Confederacy. He believes once the President is in the hands of the Confederate government, the Federal Army will have no choice but to agree to a prisoner exchange. The President of the United States for Confederate Army Soldiers held in Northern Prisons. This will either embolden the Confederacy to victory or force the North to recognize its government. Booth knows Lincoln makes frequent trips to his cottage on the grounds of Soldier's Home, just outside Washington. And he often makes those trips alone along isolated rural roads. Booth's plot involves a group of men overtaking the president's carriage, placing him in handcuffs, and then transporting him through Southern Maryland and into Richmond. But to execute such a plan, Booth needs a group of men, and he needs secure passage into Richmond. He dedicates most of 1864 to recruiting co-conspirators and mapping the route. Acting is a distant memory, and a far bigger drama is about to unfold. By January 1864, Booth's abduction plan is more than just a fantasy that he plays out in his head. He recruits David Harold, a pharmacy clerk, he convinces associates Samuel Arnold and Michael O'Laughlin to act as muscle for the abduction. Thomas Harbin and John Surratt join the plot and are tasked with securing Booth's passage into Richmond with a president in shackled custody. George Atzerott and Lewis Powell also sign up to the plot. He keeps his co-conspirators in separate groups. They are unknown to each other, with each group only aware of its particular mission in the plot. Later that month, Booth suddenly changes his plans. He learns that Lincoln no longer makes solo trips to the soldier's house. Higher security measures have been placed around the president's movement because of fears for his safety. Booth takes it in his stride. He settles on a new location that he knows the president frequents. Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. But the new plan spooks his co-conspirators the isolated location of the original abduction place is crucial to the plot. To abduct the president of the United States while he is in public view is bold, perhaps too bold to stand a chance of success. Booth's co-conspirators start to doubt him. To make matters worse, his family and friends are growing increasingly concerned about a state of mind. They have noticed changes in Booth's manner that make them wonder what is going on. He no longer shows any interest in his acting career and his once-chronic optimism has faded. They try to entice him back to the stage and write him letters expressing concerns over his idleness and how he has become distracted and short-tempered. Booth takes no notice. He continues in his plot, assuring his co-conspirators of success and finessing the details. He builds cover stories with his co-conspirators, gathers evidence of their involvement behind their backs so that if any one of them decides to quit he can blackmail them with exposure. He takes his co-conspirators to Ford's theater to watch a play. It is nothing more than a recce visit designed to allow those involved to get to know the theater layout and location of the abduction. But his co-conspirators still have concerns. And when news that prisoner exchanges had already resumed begins to spread, some argue the plot should be abandoned entirely. The objective was to abduct the president in order to force the issue of prisoner exchanges. If that is no longer strangling the Confederate struggle, what purpose would the abduction now serve? The abduction in public view also plays on their minds. It seems an impossible task, with some arguing even if they managed to abduct Lincoln, there is no way they would get him out of Ford's Theater, let alone to Richmond. These doubts weaken the resolve of the co-conspirators and their conviction in Booth. Booth reaches an impasse with his co-conspirators. Some argue that he does not intend to abduct the president and is refusing to explain his real intention. The plan is too audacious, and perhaps Booth actually intends to assassinate Lincoln. That's a plot they never signed up for. His co-conspirator, Arnold, who will act as muscle in the abduction, tells him, you can be the leader of the party, but not my executioner. But Booth is a master of persuasion and convinces them to continue on. They've all traveled too far down the road of conspiracy to give up now. They must soldier forward with bravery and carry on with a plan. In case any doubt continues to linger, he entraps them further by staging a fake abduction attempt that implicates them all in the act of treason. On the morning of April 10th, 1865, newspapers run the headline, Surrender of Lee and his whole army. Grant terms accepted. Richmond, the seat of the failed Confederate government, has fallen. The Confederate army has laid down its arms and admitted defeat. For all intents and purposes, the war is over and the North is the victor. Booth is despondent. The opportunity to redirect the course of the war and bring victory to the South has passed. His plot to abduct the president has lost its purpose. Booth meets one of his co-conspirators after taking out his anger at a shooting range on Pennsylvania Avenue. It all seems lost, and so his co-conspirator asks Booth why he is not acting. Angry, Booth explains he is finished with the stage, and the only play he is interested in now is Venice Preserved. His co-conspirator doesn't realize that Venice Preserved is a play about a plot to assassinate the leaders of Venice. The abduction plot may have come to an end, but for Booth, assassinating the president, is an increasingly attractive alternative. He spends the next few days wandering the streets, stopping at places he often frequents, and speaking briefly with associates. He's a lost soul, an actor without direction, or an audience. On April 11th, Lincoln delivers a victory speech outside the White House. Booth is in the crowd with Harold. He is fuming, and still trying to make sense of this world he hoped he would prevent from coming into existence. When he hears Lincoln suggest that the formerly enslaved will be given to the right to vote, he snaps. The right to vote means citizenship, a privilege Booth cannot tolerate for people he believes belong in slavery. He pushes through the crowd and mutters, now by God I'll put him through. For Booth, it's the final straw. Over the next few days, Booth visits a number of theaters in Washington, DC, asking if Lincoln is expected to attend any performances. As the Capitol celebrates, Booth informs his co-conspirators that their objective has changed. Booth will kill the president. And there is more. Pointing to each collaborator, he explains, Atzerodt will kill Vice President Johnson while the others take out Secretary of State Seward. If abducting Lincoln no longer serves any use, then coordinated multiple attacks on his government will show them the fight is not yet over. Atzerodt balks. He isn't a killer. Booth makes it clear he has no choice. He's gathered enough evidence to prove Atzerodt's involvement in the plot to abduct the president. He's already a dead man. This proclamation silences dissent and the others fall into line. All they need now is the right moment. That moment arrives on April 14th at Ford's Theater. It's April 14th, 1865, the night President Abraham Lincoln is assassinated. The civil war that has ravaged the country since 1861 is finally coming to an end with Northern Union forces to clear victors. Just five days earlier, Confederate General Robert E. Lee abandoned Petersburg, and surrendered to Union General Ulysses S. Grant at the Battle of Appomattox Courthouse. It marked one of the final battles of the American Civil War. The country will stay as one, with Southern states ineffectively seeking secession, having no choice but to accept defeat. In Washington, D.C., residents of the city, politicians, and visitors sigh a collective breath of relief. They can start to look at a future not marked by the death of their sons at the toll of war, but by prosperity and stability under the leadership of Abraham Lincoln, the president who secured victory for the North. The air around the Capitol is throbbing with the rush of victory. The whole city is in a festive mood. Buildings are illuminated with gas jets and the shape of stars and eagles, or words such as peace and victory. Union soldiers are out in force, proudly wearing their dark blue uniforms as they walk down the city streets. People visiting the Capitol from across America crawl from one bar to another, singing victory songs and looking for another party to join. Theaters are packed with people determined to put the hell of war behind them and return to normality, none more so than Ford's Theater on 10th Street. Earlier that day, a notice appeared in the Evening Star announcing that President Abraham Lincoln will be attending Ford's to watch the performance of My American Cousin, along with his wife, Mary Todd Lincoln, and the hero of the hour, General Ulysses S. Grant himself. Tickets sell fast, and at the eight o'clock curtain, the seats are filled. Most are there to catch a glimpse of the president and General Grant, rather than watch the actual play, of course. President Lincoln's usual box is on the right-hand side of the theater, directly above the stage. It's decorated with the American flag, signaling his presence. A large walnut rocking chair has been placed in the box for him, alongside other seating for his wife and General Grant. Only, General is not there, much to the disappointment of the crowd. He took a train home to Burlington, New Jersey, earlier in the afternoon. And in his place, friends of the Lincolns, Clara Harris and her fiancé, attend instead. The Lincoln party arrives late to the theater, and as they make their way to their box, the play is interrupted. The audience gives a standing ovation, and the orchestra strikes up the patriotic song, Hail to Our Chief. The whole theater sings along, ecstatic in triumph and hope, overcome by the presence of the father of this new nation. Ford's Theater intends to close the evening with another patriotic song, "Honor to Our Soldiers, written especially for the occasion. But they will never get to the end of the play. What will unfold at Ford's Theater that night will send shockwaves through America. Washington, D.C., only hours earlier, reveling in a post-war high plunges into its deepest and darkest fears. In the immediate aftermath, chaos rules and opportunists looking for a souvenir ransack Fords. Rumors ebb and swell, sending entire neighborhoods into panic. As a team of the best doctors witness the president's every gasping breath while wondering if it will be his last. Many question if the new nation they imagined has been caught in the claws of a resistance movement that will destroy the ideals it is built on. Lincoln is relieved as everyone else that the war is over. The responsibility is a heavy burden for any president to bear. An evening at one of his favorite theaters with his adoring wife must feel like an escape of sorts, but he doesn't know what is about to unfold. Lincoln slowly makes his way through the dress circle of Ford's Theater, greeted by the applause, cheers, and whoops of the crowd. He enters his box with his wife and guests and sits in the rocking chair partly concealed behind a flag. The audience settles down, takes their seats, and everyone's attention is drawn to the stage. Many are more interested in what might be happening in the president's box than the performance itself. Abraham Lincoln, a war president known for his rousing speeches and keeping the union together, is without a doubt the main attraction of the evening. The play Our American Cousin is a popular British comedy that dates back to the 1850s, It tells the story of an aristocratic English family desperate to stay in the good graces of an American relative, Asa, played by Harry Hawk. He has just inherited the family fortune. His crass country ways test the family to their limits. It speaks to the psychology of the era. British high society built on tradition and lineage, clashing with a more brutish American way of life, rooted in the pioneer spirit and freedom, determined to forge its own path. As the evening progresses, the audience notes the reactions in the president's box. In particular, Mary Lincoln sits next to her husband, and is especially pleased to be there. She smiles throughout, while glancing at her beloved husband. By 10.15 p.m., the play is in full swing, and Act Two reveals that the American relative hasn't inherited a fortune as previously thought. The audience is as incredulous as the cast. In the dress circle, James P. Ferguson sits in a seat with a clear view of the president's box. He owns the saloon next door to Ford's Theater and makes a point of attending whenever the president is present. This evening, he is desperate to catch a glimpse of General Grant and borrows his girlfriend's opera glasses to keep a watch on the box in case Grant makes a last minute appearance. As the play enters its final act, Ferguson notices a well-groomed man with a large black mustache inching his way to the president's box. He recognizes him immediately. As a regular at the theaters of Washington, DC, he knows the actor John Wilkes Booth when he sees him. Booth stops near the entrance of the box with his hat in his hand and looks around. Harry Ford, the theater owner, is in the box office checking sales receipts. On stage, the actor Hawk delivers an ominous cutting line. Don't know the manners of good society, eh? Well, I guess I know enough to turn you inside out, old gal, you sock-dologizing old man-trap. The audience erupts into a roar of laughter, interrupted by a singular loud pop sound. Startled, Hawk spins around and sees a commotion in the president's box. From the box, he sees Booth leap over the balustrade and drop to the stage, injuring his leg as he lands. In the box office, Ford hears it too. He turns to his colleague, confused. That was not in the piece, he comments. Ford rushes to the window that looks onto the stage and sees Booth, also familiar to him. Standing, Booth raises a dagger over his head and shouts, the South shall be free! And then a blood-curdling scream coming from the president's box engulfs the entire theater. The cast of My American Cousin, still on stage and spellbound by the commotion, snap out of their shock and flee backstage. The audience, realizing this is not part of the performance, and something terrible has happened in the president's box, breaks out in panic. A stampede seems inevitable as people rush to the exits and husbands lift their wives onto the stage to keep them safe. Hordes of people hurry to the president's box, fighting to get in. Some climb the balustrade and jump into it. In the chaos, no one thinks to stop the man responsible. Booth flees into the wings, making his escape. It's 1877. St. Helen tells his friend Bates that he is John Wilkes Booth, President Lincoln's assassin, before losing consciousness. Bates may never hear the rest of the story. The doctor informs him St. Helen won't make it through the night. Bates waits by his friend's bedside for the final breath. At the very least, St. Helen, John Wilkes Booth, whoever he is, won't die alone out in the wilderness. Can the man he has known as John St. Helen all these years really be John Wilkes Booth? If he is, then who was the man killed at the Garrett Farm on April 26, 1865? How did Booth allegedly escape the clutches of the federal army and manage to live out his life undetected? Bates is desperate for his friend to survive. He rubs brandy over St. Helen's body, hoping to revitalize him, and then he waits. next week on Deathbed Confessions. We conclude our story of John Wilkes Booth and the mysterious man who claimed to be him while lying on his deathbed. We dive into the alternate theory of Booth's escape from justice that captivated the American imagination and follow the strange afterlife of the man claiming to be Booth's body as it tours the country. That's next week. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from ParCast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for ParCast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Saida Ruas. Supervising Editor Derek Jennings. Sound Supervisor Tom Pink. Edited by Rob Plummer. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Sound Design by Matias torres Mixmaster by Kean Ryan Morgan.
2: Walt Disney had a gift for storytelling that resonated with audiences. From a puppet who wanted to become a real boy. To a mermaid who yearned to be part of the human world, Disney has developed relatable and unforgettable characters. Hi, it's Alastair from ParCast. Join me for Once Upon a Time, a special collection of ParCast episodes celebrating the original Imagineer himself, as well as the origins of Disney's most iconic characters and stories. Follow the Spotify original from podcast once upon a time and catch new episodes Mondays free and only on Spotify.